0: It was June 16, 1955, when a young 15-year-old Italian-born lad saw the Statue of Liberty in the pre-dawn sky of New York Harbor. It was Mario Andretti. His family was on the Italian ocean liner, Conte Biancamano, and they were coming to the United States to live a new life and experience the American dream. Mario Andretti is our guest on a special Pit Pass Indy as the racing legend reflects on that day that brought him to America and a new life after living nine years in a displaced persons camp following World War II. Andretti could not speak English on his arrival, but has become one of the most eloquent voices in international motorsports. I had an exclusive interview with Andretti to talk about that day, along with the early days of his racing career. Formula One's incredible growth, and IndyCar in 2022 in this very special episode of Pit Pass Indy. Joining us now on Pit Pass Indy is a real racing legend and an even better friend. It's Mario Andretti. Mario... A lot of people celebrate anniversaries that mean something to them. And on June 16th, a couple of days ago, you celebrated one. If you could tell our listeners what happened to you on June 16th, 1955.
1: Well, we came to the new world and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, five in the morning, we were sailing past the Statue of Liberty um, after being at sea for about 11 days. And there was, uh, there was a f- our trip to, to this country with the family. And there was, uh, you know, memorable days. You can imagine my dad uh, saved the tickets and everything. So I, uh, I showed those tickets that, uh, just to prove that uh, we pay for our trip.
0: <laughs> and uh, it was an 11-day trip on an Italian ocean liner. And I don't want to mess up the name of it, so I'll let you pronounce cool. it.
1: Conte Biancamano, and there was actually was a nine day nine days to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then we were there for like twenty four hours, and then the next day to uh, New York. So uh, across the ocean, nine days, and Only there ship, was eleven days,
0: and there was five of you in the family that came yes. over. Yes. And according to the receipt, uh, was that a 175 American dollars per person, or
1: Yes, ten- 175 American dollars? Yeah. Well,
0: that was probably pretty much of a bargain to get a new life.
1: <laughs> yes, it was indeed. Uh, you know, open up obviously uh, that opened up the American dream for us uh, to pursue, and uh, and again, you know, from from my standpoint. Uh, Is the only way that I could have, uh, you know, just anyway, you know, just to come close to, uh, you know, to to accomplish some of the most uh, my most ambitious goals
0: in the sport. Now there was already a family member who was in Nazareth, correct?
1: Yes, indeed. You know, uh, uncle on my mother's side, and uh, basically, in order for us to obtain visas, uh, you had to have someone that would guarantee that you would have a place to stay, in other words. Uh, and uh, then my dad would have a job and all that. So he, he's the one that did that.
0: I can only imagine what the Statue of Liberty must have looked like at dawn, in the pre-dawn hours of 5 a.m.
1: You know, it was a uh, beautiful, beautiful June day, as you can imagine, 5 in the morning, limpid, clear, clear day. And said, uh, my sister learned it. To sing uh, the American national anthem, and she was we were on the bow of the, of the boat, and uh, she was singing away. <laughs> My sister was a very jovial individual she was uh twenty one years old that was that was her birthday at twenty one years of age and uh, so she was very happy and uh, so were all all of us.
0: Uh, well, that was quite a birthday present that your father was able to give to not only her but to uh, the rest of the family.
1: Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
0: How from that point on? How long did it take to get processed? And then how long did it take before you were over in Nazareth, Pennsylvania?
1: Oh, we were uh, just quickly. Uh, you know, it was. I don't think it took more than an hour, uh, and we were on our way uh, to Pennsylvania. Yeah.
0: So that's how it all began, and at that time when you got off the boat, how much English did Mario Andretti speak?
1: Well, Aldo and I uh, had three years of English in school, and uh, we couldn't speak a word of it. <laughs> you know, we understood yes and no. My dad thought, oh, gee, they studied two years of English, you know, they'd be fluent. So when we uh, uh, would disembark in Nova Scotia, you know, to buy some— some postcards to send back uh, you know, to uh to our grandparents or whatever. Uh I I couldn't even ask for that. So that thought we were stupid, you know, but uh but it served us well because at least you learned on grammar and uh and you know by uh I swore I to myself I said by by Christmas this we arrived in June and we obviously went to school in September. I said, by Christmas, I want to be able to uh, communicate in, in English. And uh, I think I accomplished that, you know, not, you know, that fluently, but I knew what was going on.
0: So you arrived in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and uh, your father went to work at one of the uh, concrete companies or cement companies? Yes, cement block company, cement block company, yes. Okay, so uh, where were you at that time? And th- I believe you were 15.
1: Fifteen, yes,
0: yeah. So, what was it like going to a new high school in a new world?
1: Well, it was uh, it was really easy, you know. That uh, our um, the schooling in Italy was uh, much more intense. Um, you know, I went. We uh, Aldo and I uh, went to what they call industrial school, uh, prep for university, and uh, three years and and uh, we we were there eight. 30 to 12:30 every day, and two to six. Friday, 8:30 to 12:30, two to five, and Saturday 8:30 to 12:30. No homeroom. We'll you know, the, here they, we're supposed to go in tenth grade, but they put us in seventh grade because uh, uh, because of the language barrier, obviously. And uh, and then the first hour when I arrived, we arrived at the school, the high school. Um, the uh, it was a homeroom I said oh only in America <laughs> you know there was the homeroom did not exist in our school and uh, so anyway it was very I thought I was going to kindergarten by by comparison so uh, we were quite a bit ahead of uh, all of that uh, as far as the schooling is concerned
0: so then at what point did you discover the old Nazareth raceway uh, two to Two days after we arrived,
1: <laughs> we actually was uh, we arrived on a well three days. We arrived on a Thursday and Sunday night. We were just um, basically hanging out at my uh, my uncle Uncle Tony's house and uh, and there were bright lights in the background and all at the fairgrounds. And all of a sudden we heard a big roar of engines. And I figured, oh my God! So Alden and I looked at each other and we just booked. We followed the noise. And uh, that's when we discovered a half-mile dirt track there. And we looked through, peeked through the the fence there, and then we see those brute-looking modified stock cars. And uh, we figured, you know what, uh, I think we can do this. Two years later, we started building our own car to race there.
0: And I know that uh, that did not come with your father's blessing. So how did you get around that?
1: Well, I think the best thing was the language barrier, you know, that was our defense uh, because, uh, you know, it took him a lot longer to, uh, you know, to deal with that. And, uh, and he we ran the whole season, uh, you know, and we were winning some races. So we were winning some races. It was in local papers and, and, uh, you know, sometimes I said this a million times, the boss would say, hey, Gigi, your kids are really doing well. And all. he had no idea what the guy was saying. So uh, uh, he thought maybe the guy was, uh, you know, just saying, hey, you're doing a good job. But anyway, uh, we were getting away. But until the last race of the season in, in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, it was an invitational. And uh, that's when Aldo got hurt. And that's how he found out.
0: And what was his reaction?
1: Well, when Aldo finally came around, you know, he was in a coma for quite some time, and when he came around, the first thing he said to me, I'm glad you're the one that had to face the old man. <laughs> he, so I I knew that he has his faculties, you know, when he said that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm the one that, uh, but uh, you know, it was, uh, my dad was, it was basically you know, it was uh, a parent's reaction, you know, uh, the sport, you know, if you, he was not a fan of the sport. All he knew about is, you know, the negatives, the fatalities that, um, and you know, we loved motor racing in Italy and our, our, um, idol, my absolute idol, the Scari, was, was killed just about a month to well Yeah. Two months before we, we left for America. So, um, you know, all those things. And, um uh, uh again uh, it was that's all that he uh was thinking about oh yeah the other thing on the manifest uh, while we were at sea there was uh while we were at sea there was a twenty four hours of Le Mans, and they had a big news about uh, uh, pierre levegue uh, whining in the grandstand, killing eighty five people and himself uh and this you know he had all of that that's all he he knew about and he figured, you guys, you know, you want to be racy or crazy no way that I was going to, that he was going to, you know, encourage or say, do it. You know, we were still underage. But, um, anyway, we got around
0: it. What was it he wanted you to be?
1: I have no idea. I don't think, you know, it was, uh, I don't think he had any idea either. I mean, it just that I never was concerned about that. I think, uh, when I was still a young lad in Italy, uh, I always say I never had a plan B as far as my dreams. And uh, and there was no one else who was going to sway me either way, you know. Not my dad, not anyone. I, I didn't want to defy him in any way, but uh, I knew what I wanted. And, uh, and America, when we arrived here, I mean, just learning about the track being nearby and 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 being able to do something ourselves, to uh, deal with it. Uh, it's doable. Obviously, we didn't do it ourselves. Uh, we had a couple of buddies. We, uh, we assembled four other buddies, you know, that um, really helped us uh, build this car. And, uh, you know, we bought uh, information, you, you know, from uh, from a, a, a stock car for a NASCAR team. And uh, that's, how, that's how we got the setup for the car.
0: So your first form of racing was in jalopies, correct? Yeah, yeah. And those were what, what type of, uh, you, what year cars was your first race car?
1: Well, they, they were running a lot of cutback, cut down 37, Ford's and Chevy's and so forth. But ours, we we uh, we built the 48 Hudson because Hudson, the Hudson cars were really uh, winning all the race on the short tracks in NASCAR, and that's what we decided to build. At least it was uh you know that what was suggested. One of our buddies, you know, always say you know we had the geek, you know, the guy that knew everything, Charlie Mitch, and uh, and he he suggested that, and um, and so anyway, uh, and that's what we did.
0: Now, at what point you were introduced to Indianapolis before you even came to America? I believe it was from the movie "To Please a Lady," which in Italy had a different title.
1: Well, the title was Indianapolis, yeah, in Italy. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that uh, that movie was fascinating because uh, it showed him uh, the road to Indy, which is in the dirt tracks and so forth, and uh, and that was. You know, something very, very foreign to us. There's no dirt track racing in Europe uh, anywhere except for rallying, you know. But that's different. And uh, certainly no ovals. And, and so at least uh, that's how we were introduced. I said, well, it's interesting type of racing, you know, over there. But uh, it still looked like race cars. So, <laughs> you know, it was attractive.
0: And also the, uh, I remember you telling me one time about the uh, Milia Milia. Yeah. That uh, you actually got a chance uh, where you were, where your family was living in the uh, one of the displacement camps after World War II. I believe the Mila Milia came close by. Um, am I off a little on that story, or is that about right? No,
1: it's true. It's very true. Yeah, yeah. In 1955, uh, uh, we saw that in the Mila Milia, which was uh, actually uh, taking place usually in May, and so that was. Just uh, just before we came to America uh, in '54, we saw the Italian Grand Prix in Monza. But in '55, we we drove uh, to uh, Florence uh, in the Apennines. Uh, There's actually the place called the Futa Pass, and and I watched them come through the mountains and so forth. Uh, it was really fascinating, and that's that's when we we saw. Sterling Moss with that Mercedes that Iwanda actually that day. I mean that yeah, it's, it goes more than than a day. And but um, and but uh, well, he he's the only uh, car that had a passenger, which was the journalist Dennis Jenkinson. And <laughs> uh, it was really interesting to see uh, even in those days, obviously, to have a rider along with something very unusual. And I remember witnessing that.
0: Yeah, I'm not too sure many sanctioning bodies would uh, would allow that to happen today. But
1: uh, no, but Dennis Jenkins looked just like you. Looked like you know it could have been yeah Bruce Martin
0: there. Probably about the best I could get would be a two seater ride with you on that, which would be a, a, a pretty good ride. As uh, I've done two seaters, I uh, you know it's they're they're definitely quite a ride. But uh, appreciate you thinking of me in that regard. <laughs> What point though did your career get into the USAC midgets and sprints?
1: Well, uh you know, my you know, the first thing that I wanted to do uh get out of the stock cars um uh, wanted to get into uh, midgets and I got uh into uh uh three-quarter midgets. You know, there was uh, three-quarter midgets were really very popular in those days uh this here in the East uh with it, um you know, some of the top uh uh, regular, you know, icons of measure racing, you know, we're, we're driving those in winter, uh, Len Duncan, Tony Bonadio, Tony Rahman, all those guys. And, um, uh, and I got a ride actually, uh, well, we got a ride. We bought a car that, uh, uh, Bobby Marshman had been driving. It was a famous deuce. And, uh, and it was, uh, owned by the president of the, uh, American three quarter racing association. And, uh, that's how, you know, I got going and, and I won some, actually I won the, the biggest race of, uh, of the winter season. There was in Teaneck Jersey. Josie was a hundred lapper and Len Duncan finished second to me. And that, that, uh, you know, earned me a ride in a full size midget in ARDC with the Mateka brothers. And, uh, and that was really, really peachy for me. That's what I really needed because I tried to get rides in URC Sprint cars. And I don't know, somehow uh, I just I just couldn't get any traction with anybody there. I was getting really crappy cars. and uh, But uh, when I got into the proper midget, uh, I just I loved that. Actually... They even in 63, I won three races in one day, three feature races in one day. Uh, Flemington, New Jersey, in the afternoon, Hatfield, Pennsylvania, and there was a third feature It was uh, to be run off from uh, uh, Rain Out Day, and I won three features, and I won the heats and the match races. I won everything that day. And, and in 63 also, there was one road race, a midget road race uh, ever. At, uh, in Lime Rock, Connecticut, and uh, and I won that one too. Uh, so that was actually my first road race, uh, official road race that I won. And so and and you know by winning some of those uh, ARDC races, uh, you know I sort of caught a little bit of the attention of uh, of uh, Rufus Gray you know, in, from Indianapolis, uh, he had a sprint car that Judd Larson drove for and, uh, for him and Judd Larson got a ride with, uh, AJ Watson. And, uh, he thought, you know, he'd give me a try and, and we did well with him. And, and from there, you know, and get the champ car. So, uh, you know, the progression was really very good for me. Uh, just, uh, Opportunities at the right time and uh, and good people helping me.
0: Now, was your goal to go to the Indianapolis 500, or was your goal to go to Formula One?
1: No, no. I mean, uh, everything was to to be uh, to try to gain a reputation here, and and, and and I had no idea how, if anything, was going to happen in Formula One. But uh, that was always in the back of my mind. But uh, you know, uh, when I got into uh, USAC. Then all of a sudden we started doing road racing. As you know, I the first road race that USAC champ cars ever had it was at at the raceway park, Indianapolis Raceway Park, and I won that. And then I got into sports cars. Um started driving sports cars. I drove uh Ferrari for Kennedy and then I got into the, the Ford Lamont program and I wanted to hone myself and you know, all my skills as much as possible you know, to, uh, possibly do formula one because in 65 at, uh, you know, when Jim Clark won, and of course, Colin Chapman there, I made sure that I would uh, befriend them and, uh, express my desires to, uh, to do formula one someday. And, uh, this is exactly when we were saying our goodbyes after the banquet, uh, I said, Colin Chapman, I said, uh, Calling someday I would like to do Formula One. And he said he was, he was fabulous. He said, Mario, when you think you're ready, you just call me and I'll have a car for you. Now, that was the best thing I could have heard, you know, (laughs) uh, that put me on cloud nine, as you can imagine. So the objective then was to try to really do as much road racing as possible to be able to feel that uh, I'm ready to go and, and my very first Formula One race, I put the car on pole Watkins Glen in '68, three years later.
0: Now, your career also crossed path with Roger Penske at Indianapolis. Uh, if you could explain, was it Roger that turned down a ride that ultimately went to you, or how did that all work?
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, actually, he keeps reminding me that. <laughs> Um, it's true. Um, Roger obviously was active driver and, um, he was driving sports cars and so forth. And, uh, uh, the Dean Van Lines team, you know, with Clint Bronner and Jim McGee, um, they had Chuck Hulse as their driver and he got hurt badly in a sprint car race in a brand, which I forgot was in that race myself. And, uh, and so they, uh, they were looking for a driver and, uh, and, and, I think Roger, Roger Pension name was, uh, was came up and, you know, for them and he was supposed to do a, a, a tire test, uh, a fire tire test in Trenton, New Jersey. And, um, and so uh, my name was in that hat as well, but, uh, but he was, you know, much better known except that the last minute he had, a another commitment. Thank goodness. And, um, and he couldn't make it, so they, you know, they asked me to to go there, and and I uh, I got my job. That was my break.
0: So, beginning at Trenton of that year, you started driving uh, the Dean Van Line special.
1: That's in nineteen fifty four. Yes.
0: Yes, and that included a third place finish at Milwaukee, which was quite an accomplishment back in that day. Uh, you know, to finish top three, top five at Milwaukee, a very tough. Mile Oval, uh, but what was it uh, about that season that helped you prepare for the next year? When you not only showed everybody at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway who Mario Andretti was, but you also won your first national championship.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, what was uh, really uh, unbelievably uh, f- effective for me? It was golden to to have. Uh, uh, that relation started that relationship with Firestone because, uh, you know, the Dean Van lines team with, as I said, with Clint Bronner and Jim McGee were one of the top three teams, uh, the, uh, in, in, in USAC at the time. And they were, uh, tied with the uh, Firestone uh, during the, the big tire war between Firestone and Goodyear. And, uh, so there was extensive amount of testing and development and they were part of all of it. And there I was, you know, just, uh, uh, getting uh, a lot of seat time, which was golden for me, as you can imagine. It's what I really needed. And, um, and so, uh, in 1964, uh, I drove for about less half of the season or something for them. He didn't want me to do Indy. He didn't want me to do, do Lyinghorn, I did Lyinghorn on somebody else and whatever, but, uh, but things were going, you know, pretty well. And then, uh, in sixty five uh we started the first two race of the season uh, with the roadster and uh and I was leading in Phoenix. Uh you know, actually uh <laughs> I went by Roger Ward Parnelli, with the in the rear engine car they had the were and and then uh uh an output shaft broke in the transmission and uh so it of put me out. But uh but the uh, but the second race was at Trenton just before Indy. And I finished second to McCarry. Jim McCarry, was in a um, in a Brabham uh, rear engine car that uh, actually claimed broner, and uh, you know they they copied. That was going to be my ride for, for starting with Indy, and uh, I finished second to him. And then my first experience ever in a Formula, in a rear engine car was just at Indy. Where uh, And I had never driven anything else there before, so it was kind of daunting, but uh, it was interesting. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the car turned out to be really a good car, and and I uh, pretty much adapted to it uh, very easily. And so, you know, things were going pretty well.
0: Uh, you started fourth and finished third in that year's Indianapolis 500. Of course, that was a race that was won by... Jim Barton. Jim Clark, and he pretty much had that race under control that day. The thing that strikes me about the 65 season is I'm counting up the chassis here. I believe you drove four or five different chassis that year. You had the Bloom, you had the Hawk, you had the Brawner, you had the Kuzma. You would not see yeah. that in today's type of IndyCar racing. Four or five different chassis used by a race team throughout the year. What Same was the... Season, yeah. What was the story to to that?
1: Well, that's what they had for me, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, that's all I can say. I mean, that's the way it was. Uh, uh, they, you know, Clint Bronner and Jim, they, uh, they, you know, they prepared the, the best thing they could do for me and, and, um, and it was working quite well. You know, even my rookie season, I was, you know, learning and, uh, and the best thing for me that would really work for me was learning how to adapt to different chassis and so forth and and try to understand, you know, what make these things tick and and help myself in the setups and everything. So all of it you know, ultimately was working for me in a very positive way, as you can imagine. A great challenge, but what the heck, that's what I had to deal with and and i loved it
0: did you ever think that you could win the national championship in really what was your first full season
1: well no i mean it's, there's no way you could uh, anticipate that uh you, you know those things you can only you always have to think big you know you can but uh i you know <laughs> uh, that that was uh that that was a gift that i never thought that uh not going in. and thinking, you know, okay, we got a shot to shut it winning the national championship. No way.
0: Now, speaking of the national championship, I recall the story that you've told me before about being on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And he introduced you as the Indianapolis 500 Rookie of the Year. And I know that that kind of burned you a little bit because it was never mentioned that you were the IndyCar national champion. <laughs> so, if you could just tell that story. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, What's interesting about that? It, uh, it, it uh, brought to reality how uh, how important career-wise uh, that, that one race is Indianapolis, and uh, I was, you know, I felt the season was the ultimate, you know, for a championship for a driver. But uh, it seems like uh, uh, Indianapolis winning Indianapolis uh, seems to have more value uh from the standpoint of uh you know people just uh, knowing that and uh it trumps the championship, which is uh, it's almost unfair but uh, that's the way it is and uh and it brought some reality to me you know that uh how important that that event is um so i you know I was proud as a peacock you know that uh, I was the youngest. Driver at that time to win a national championship and uh, and that's not I was only introduced as a rookie of the year that uh, year I mean uh, later on I made sure to tell him hey you know I won the championship as well oh what's that <laughs>
0: <laughs> well in '66 you came back and won another championship another IndyCar national championship in '67 you finished second on uh, '68 you finished second. But in 1967, you also won the Daytona 500. And how did that ride come about? That was a race where you pretty much went out there. You were in a Ford factory program, but I know that uh, not, not, you weren't necessarily the guy that uh, some of the people at Ford wanted to see win that day.
1: Well, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's true that I was a teammate with uh, Freddie Lorenzen you know, uh, who was, you know, obviously, uh, you know, very accomplished, incredibly accomplished driver, uh, of the times. And, um, and, and again, you know, all the, the major attention was on him, no question. And, uh, but, um, uh, I, I think I felt that I had a good car, but I didn't, I didn't realize it during practice, even, uh, the, When you go single qualifying, how much power I was down on the engine. And um, it was only, nobody would tell me, you know, the res that I should be, I should be seen, you know, with that, with the gear that I was running. And until I kind of, uh, I was just chatting with uh, Donnie (laughs) Allison, believe it or not. You know, I said, you know, a 370 gear, so what what do you think I should be seeing? He said, about 7,200. Well, I was only, I'm only down 400 revs. <laughs> and, uh, so I qualified with a very low spoiler and you had to race with whatever you qualified. So, uh, by the time I, uh, I, you know, I politicked myself into a decent engine, I was really flying with that thing. And, uh, uh, but there was going to be something, you know, uh, daunting to, to keep that thing on the track without spinning, you know, with a small spoiler that I had. And, uh, and that's why I, I had to try to lead as much as possible. That's why, you know, I let, you know, uh, have to race and, uh, and, and that, that really worked for me because I, I got to figure out, uh, you know, the line to run and what to, how to protect myself. Uh, I had a watch that, uh, you know, not too many guys would overtake me through the corners on the outside. So I was running very high quite a bit most of the day. And, and, um, and I, I had a good fight against the best out there. And, uh, but I had a, I had a car that, um, uh, that was capable. I, I was like, uh, almost every lap I was like qualifying, you know, I just, uh, um, I really felt good about it, uh, I had a decent mechanical balance in the car, which is important. So I had some decent feel of the back end, even though the thing was really loose. But um, it worked. It worked out.
0: And then you won the Indianapolis 500 in 1969. And I know that you've said in the past that that was probably a car you least expected to win that race in. You had much better cars in other Indy 500s that didn't make it to the finish. What was it in 1969, that whole scenario uh, you crashed in practice before qualifying, had to switch to a different car? If you could just tell the, the background of that a little bit.
1: Well, real quick, we, uh, in, in 1969, uh, um, I had uh, I had told the, the team, I owned the, the team in 68 because uh, um, Mr. D, uh, Al Dean, uh Dean team uh lines uh, passed away, and, and I, I wanted to make sure that I would retain everybody. You know, uh, the team intact, and uh, I owned the team that year. But then they follow it. All the following year, I sold it to um, to Andy Granatelli of S.T.P. and uh, and we had a deal to run. I had made a deal to run a Lotus, a four-wheel drive. Uh, you know, Lotus uh, for '69, and uh, Colin was obviously had his own team there and was sponsored by SDP. And and then the cars were fast, but they were very fragile. The, uh, uh, Colin had, uh, actually, uh, there were two, uh, accidents, um, uh, that, uh, one with, uh, Mike Spence, I think, and the other one with, uh, Graham Hill that they crashed, uh, you know, suspension braking and, and, You know, with me, uh, you know, we were setting records and so forth with that car. But uh, um, the first weekend of qualifying was uh, rained out. And it was the Thursday of uh, the second week uh, that um, all of a sudden, you know, during one of my runs, the, the right rear hub sheared and I crashed heavily in turn four and big fire and the car was destroyed. And I was really lucky, you know, to come away with some facial burns and so forth. But, uh, and then we, here we got. We, uh, we had, uh, and they withdrew the cars because, uh, they, they felt that they were dangerous. And, uh, and then we drew all the Lotuses. And we were left with the, with the Bronner a Hawk that, um, that Eddie Kuzma built, you know, it was basically on the Brabham chassis suspension but it was built into a monocoque so it was like half lotus half bravo if you will and uh the car was it uh, was a good car but uh, we had some uh, systems problems Uh we won uh with that car we had we won uh, Hanford the, 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 the which was the race before Indy and uh but we had no idea you know what it was going to do there at Indy but we had no choice we brought it out of the car was entered you know and, uh, and, uh, and we brought it out and fortunately I put her in the middle of the front row, you know, that was just one full day of practice on Friday. And, uh, and, and again, here we go. The, the car that I leased throughout my career at Indy thought that, uh, I would have a chance of winning here. I wind up winning the race with it, with, uh, with all kinds of overheating problems and everything else I had in.
0: You led 116 laps that day, and I believe you uh, defeated Dan Gurney in second place. Bobby Unser was in third. You're in Victory Lane. Victory Lane is most remembered. You got kissed by uh, Annie Granatelli <laughs> in Victory Lane. And, and what was that whole moment like for you?
1: I uh, It was so much uh, happiness in the sense that uh, I—, I I felt so good about not just winning for myself and ourselves the team and everything, but uh, uh, for Andy, because I know how much that meant to him. You know, Andy uh, Andy was the only thing that mattered to him. He didn't care about the championship. He didn't care about anything. Just Andy, as you could see, the efforts that he made over the years with the Novice and then with the turbine cars and everything. So, and us having had all of those issues Going into this race, and then here we go, and we we still win it. I I could just picture him when I crossed that finish line. That's the first thing that crossed my mind. I wonder how how Andy feels, you know. And uh, that was a great feeling throughout. I mean, it's uh, uh, yeah. He he gave me a big kiss, and I <laughs> that's typical Andy, you know.
0: And at that time, didn't you feel that? That was probably going to be the first of, oh, I don't know, seven or eight Indy 500s you were going to win in your career? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, obviously,
1: it was really a great feeling to get, uh, because I had, uh, since uh, 1965, uh, 66, 67, you know, I was on pole, 66, 67, I probably could have won two of the easiest races of my career, the way the car was working. And then, uh, I dropped out early in both those races, 68, I dropped off in the third lap. So I figured, what do I have to do to finish this race again? And, uh, here I go, the second one that I, second time that I finished, I win it. And, uh, so I felt, well, you know, maybe with some luck and if I'm still around, I'll, you know, I'll be able to put a couple more together, you know, and then, but, uh, you know, the place has been kind of fickle for me, uh. As you can imagine, I mean, uh, history tells you that.
0: Little did anybody realize that, day, but that would be the only Indy 500 win that you would get, although you would go down in history as one of the greatest drivers ever to race there. You also achieved your Formula One dream, won in the 1978 Formula One World Championship. Numerous victories, national championships, but I kind of want to do a quick segue to 2022. You've got two different drivers breathing down uh, on two of your records. You're second in race wins, and Scott Dixon is one behind you. And you're also the leader in all-time IndyCar polls with 67, and Will Powers coming up uh, pretty close to equaling and maybe even passing you for that record. When you think of those two achievements and how long they've stood, how do you feel to have it? Those are the two drivers that are contending to maybe move you down a notch in career victories or take away the pole, pole record that you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have the greatest, uh, greatest respect for both of them. You know, Scott and Will, no question. I mean, these are I'm very proud that, uh, you know, that they would be out there just knocking it at this record. Um, I'm proud of it myself and, and sure as heck, uh, uh, they, they're, they have earned it so far. So, uh, if it happens, it can happen to better guys. Quite honestly. Um, I feel, I honestly feel that way. Um, yeah, you like to keep a record, but records are made to be broken. And, uh, and I, you know, um, I I've had my days there and, and and I'm fully grateful for everything that I've had so far so uh someone can better those I mean I that's uh it's my admiration for them
0: But when you look at a driver like Scott Dixon, is it a little bit eerie in the fact that you two share so much in common, that you were both the greatest drivers of your generation, only have one Indy 500 victory to show for it? I'm sure that in a lot of ways when you saw the way he lost the Indy 500 this year, your heart probably went out to him because mile an hour uh, over the speed limit on Pitt Road, uh, what a way to lose an Indy 500. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: no question. I mean, uh, uh, trust me, we, uh, we understand, <laughs> uh, I, I know, uh, I know those pains, <laughs> you know, it's a different circumstance, but nevertheless. And, uh, and, you know, I, I really, truly, truly felt for him. Uh, no question. He, uh, he was walking this race, you know, this year and, uh, and, you know, we being on pole and everything else. Uh, but, you know, that's indie. That's the way it is. Uh, we have to accept it and, and go on. You know, you have to be stronger than that. Uh, it's a negative at the, at the moment, but you just got to let go and then uh, go and try again.
0: And in our final couple of questions with uh, racing legend Mario Andretti, uh, Formula One is on a real upswing lately. Uh, it's record crowds almost everywhere they go. Uh, I know that your son... Michael wants to form a Formula One team and begin competition in F1 in 2023. What do you see as being the big reason why Formula One is on such an upward streak at the moment?
1: Well, after probably many reasons, but it seemed like uh, uh, everyone just pretty much gravitated to that series, uh, the Netflix series that uh, it sort of depicted... Formula One in, in in a very special way, you know, when deep into what really goes into it, and and uh, it fascinated uh, I think a lot of people, maybe uh, maybe even a younger crowd, and uh, and somehow, and you know, it's exciting. It's an exciting series in every way, you know. It's, they always say, you know, because of it's international status, the Olympics, and motorsports, and uh, and you know, the way the competition is today, the characters that, uh, there are, you know, the protagonists there. So, uh, it's got a lot going for it. Uh, and it's great to see that, uh, you know, it's, uh, especially in the United States, you know, it was popular, always popular, but now it's, uh, it's beyond that, you know, and, and, uh, it's got a new, uh, level of popularity, which, uh, you know, it's all motorsports. I love all motorsports, and uh, that's good for us uh, in general. You know, when when fans gravitate to our sport, that's that's what we love.
0: And I know you're a leading proponent in Colton hurt of going to Formula One as a driver. In some ways, though, doesn't that kind of hurt IndyCar to hear as a uh, homegrown uh, potential racing star that would be leaving IndyCar to go to F1?
1: Well, you know, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't hurt. I mean, uh, this uh, moving about, you know, from uh, discipline to discipline with drivers, I think it's a very healthy thing. And, and uh, you know, Colton, I'm sure that he'd like to have a, a good shot of Formula One for, uh, for, for a period, uh, you know, until he hopefully accomplishes uh, his own goals. And then he'll ultimately come back and probably like I did and, uh, and, 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 uh, resume his career in Indy cars, I would suspect. Uh, so, uh, this is all good stuff. I mean, it's uh, I like to see the exchange just like you see even, you know, with Jimmy Johnson, you know, seven time NASCAR champion, you know, just, uh, uh, trying to, uh, you know, to just develop his career as an Indy car driver now. Um, uh, this is all good for the sport. This, um, you know, it's something that I'm a proponent of. It I've been part of all that, and I think it's very healthy.
0: And wrapping up here with Mario Andretti, uh, how do you view IndyCar in 2022? It's been a very competitive season. Uh, we've had. Eight different pole winners, which um, that hasn't happened since 1961 when there were nine different pole winners. Uh, different drivers winning races. The only multiple winner this year has been Joseph Newgarden with three victories. What is your uh, assessment of IndyCar in 2022?
1: Couldn't be any better, to be honest with you. I mean, it's uh, all you have to do is, uh, you know, even look around around me, uh, just uh the, the people that uh, the individuals that, uh, uh, love the sport, uh, and I'm looking at, at Amy, my sister, she can hardly wait for an IndyCar to practice to start and follow the whole weekend. Uh, and because there's so much to look forward to, uh, and it's the unpredictability, all of it. And, uh, you have so many, and so many drivers having, uh, basically equal chance of, uh, of bringing home the trophies, you know, so, um, you pick your, you know, pick your favorite. And, uh, and again, you know, when you have uh this level of competition and, and, you know, let's face it, uh, as far as open wheel racing, uh, the, the, the action on the track is unequaled anywhere. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, IndyCar is in a very good place right now. No question about a future solid, when you have this quality of teams that you have, and then and the level of talent that uh, you're sporting right now, you got the product. You got the product. You're in good shape.
0: And I guess in many ways, uh, you know, you've been able to embody the American dream, and your career in racing certainly has proven that. Uh, Mario Andretti, racing legend, and more importantly, friend. Good luck um, enjoy the latter years uh, out there that you you keep uh, putting your foot to the floor in that two seater I'm sure <laughs> you've thrilled very many people to are able to get a ride with Mario Andretti in an Indy car. Yeah, and uh, that. and thank you for joining us today on Pit Pass Indy.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me on.
0: We'll be right back to Pit Pass Indy after this short break. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. For household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. Welcome back to this week's edition of Pit Pass Indy. IndyCar did not have a race over the weekend, but 20 of its cars and drivers tested at Iowa Speedway in Newton, Iowa, in a private test on the .875 mile short oval on Monday, June 20th. That facility will host the HighvealDeals.com 250 on Saturday, July 23, and the High Salute to Farmers 300 on Sunday, July 24, with both races on NBC. Drivers that tested at Iowa on Monday included Elio Castroneves, Scott Dixon, 106th Indianapolis 500 winner Marcus Erickson, Jack Harvey, J.R. Hildebrand, Callum Eilat, Jimmy Johnson, Dalton Kellett, Kyle Kirkwood, Christian Lungard, Scott McLaughlin, David Malukas, Joseph Newgarden, Pato Award, Simon Pagino, Alex Palou, Will Power, Graham Rahal, Felix Rosenquist, and Takuma Sato. Two more tests are scheduled with seven drivers on the 14-turn, 2.439-mile road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on June 23rd. Those drivers include Devlin DeFrancesco, Roman Grosjean, Colton Herta, Kirkwood, Award, and Alexander Rossi. That is a private Andretti Autosport test with Aero McLaren SP choosing to participate. Four drivers are scheduled to test on June 27 at Sebring International Raceway, a track that will help simulate street course racing on July 17 at Toronto and August 7th at Nashville. Those drivers include Harvey, Lungard, Rahal, and Indy Lights presented by Cooper Tires star Benjamin Peterson with Junco's Hollinger Racing. There is a short window between the three racing weekends, counting Indy 500 qualifications at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in May, with trips that followed to Detroit and Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, immediately after the 106th Indianapolis 500. That makes this week's test at Iowa so important to the teams that hope to contend for the championship. In addition to winning the 106th Indianapolis 500, Erickson is the NTT IndyCar Series points leader. He is 27 points ahead of second place Will Power of Team Penske. Power is followed by Arrow McLaren SP's Pato Award, 45 points out of the lead. Defending NTT IndyCar Series champion Alex Pelot is fifth, 47 points out. Six-time NTT IndyCar Series champion Scott Dixon is sixth, 69 points behind the leader, followed by Alexander Rossi, 75 points out, Felix Rosenquist, 90 back of the leader, Scott McLaughlin, 94 points behind, and Simon Pagano, 96 points out. There are 11 drivers within 100 points of the championship lead. Colton Herta is 11th, 97 points out. And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank our guest, racing legend Mario Andretti, for joining us on today's podcast. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guests help make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane for all things IndyCar. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, uppercase B, uppercase M, one word, followed by underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin, and final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.